Carried Away, Beyond a Rooted Condition, is a performance created by Madison Bycroft, Nana Pinay, and Leo Landon Barrett that premiered in Cordoba on the 5th of June, 2022, as part of Passage del Agua, The Journeying Stream, a performance weekend organised in conjunction with the exhibition Abundant Futures, works from the TBA 21 collection at C3A, Centro de Creation Contemporanea de Andalusia. The performance was created site-specifically for the Botanical Gardens of Cordoba, which are located beside the opaque waters of the Guadalquivir River. The work is a movement from one place to another, but the way is not straight. It meanders, eddies, detours and gets stuck in the mangroves before a story swells and pushes it forward. But is a movement still forward if there is no goal, no destination in mind? The movement, benthic in our bodies, overflows into negative space. Latin names get stuck in the mud, particular, edged, theatrical surfaces anchored to their spot, but gathering grass, algae and eroding too. We prefer our plants like forget-me-nots and dandelions carried nonchalantly away, on a breeze through fingers unsnatching. Together we speculate in song, sound and story. Who is here? An introduced species, native and exotic? How do we recognise you, or how do we allow you your unrecognisability besides the opaque waters of the Guadalquivir? The performance carried away beyond a rooted condition by Madison Bycroft, Nana Ananis Pinay and Leo Landon Barrett begins with a rooted list, a list of things I know. It begins with numbers, then letters, then goes on to talk about naming. Number five. Most names are established deeply and firmly by someone outside the named individual, recites the artist. The list discusses naming conventions, examples of names, the disparity between the number of names listed for plants globally, and the number of recorded species by scientists. Taking place in the botanical gardens in Cordoba in Andalusia in Spain, the performance's reflections on naming, owning, possessing, appropriating and distorting become indissociable from its location. The history of botany is one of bioprospecting, extracting, exporting, naming, renaming, taxonomy and classification, appropriating and transposing knowledge. Indeed, the man who has been named the father of modern taxonomy is none other than Carl Linnaeus, an 18th century Swedish botanist whose system of categorization of organisms is still in use today. His system of organization of plant life and other organisms emerged from the idea, writes historian Londa Scheibinger, that national wealth could be aggrandized through the exact study of nature. There was in this way a co-constitution of the discipline of botany and its taxonomizing practices and various colonial projects where European bioprospectors set out to the new world in search of new food sources and medicines, either for extraction or later for exploitation in situ. In this podcast, I'll be speaking with historian Samir Boumedienne, author of La colonisation du savoir, une histoire des plantes médicinales du nouveau monde. The Colonization of Knowledge, A History of Medicinal Plants from the New World, 1492-1750. We speak about his book, which provides a history of the arrival of Europeans in the Americas in the 1490s and processes of appropriation of medicinal plants for use in Europe. His work recounts the history of Europeans encountering American plants for the first time. He speaks of the ways in which this operated commercial shifts, for example, challenging the monopoly on medicine from the East, and epistemological shifts through the encounter with new plants, but also with new systems of organisation of knowledge. Indeed, during colonial expeditions, 
plants were sought out in the aim of enriching the mother country, yet the knowledge necessary for their efficient extraction was equally as important, knowledge held not by the arriving Europeans, but by local populations. It is in this way that plants acted, among other things, as a mediator between the explorers and colonizers and the indigenous peoples they encountered. And as such, a historical study of plants can provide us a site through which we can try to understand various power relations of exploitation and extraction of knowledge, but also practices of resistance. For example, while the Europeans came to appropriate and subjugate, they were also highly dependent on the aid of local people, not only to learn how certain medicinal plants might be used, but also to heal them when they encountered various illnesses. The guarantee of benevolent intentions could never be certain. We also speak about the local systems of classification that these European explorers encountered, and how this entailed complicated processes of translation and transposition, bringing about a number of distortions of knowledge, or instances of non-transmission of knowledge. For example, Europeans who set out to discover new plants would often try to understand their properties through analogy, making comparisons with that which they already knew, sometimes to dangerous consequence. We also speak about the links between the development of botany as a scientific discipline and the practice of medicine in Europe, and how the two are indissociable from the colonial project. I also speak with researcher Chanel Adams, whose work on the exploitation of certain medicinal plants in Madagascar, one of the world's greatest biodiversity hotspots, is inextricable from the island's colonial past. This biodiversity is also indicative of a neo-colonial present, where the island's landscape is undergoing constant transformation in order to produce and exploit native plants for the demands of an international market, often at the expense of local needs. What is notable about this is that rarely do these practices and products come back to benefit the island or the local people, with plantations and distribution managed largely by foreign interests and companies. We talk about patents and labour, and the classification of plants, and the designation of toxicity used to discredit local healing practices, often in order to produce profitable alternative cures. Your book is entitled La colonisation du savoir, and it speaks about the way that botany, taxonomy, medicine and colonialism have led to both the appropriation and the loss of lots of different forms of local or indigenous knowledge. And I wanted to start with a case study from your book, because you speak about the experiences of Francisco Hernandez, who was a naturalist and court physician to the King of Spain in the 16th century. And he tried to compile a catalogue of the flora that he encountered during his voyages. But he was educated in the botanical teachings of Pliny the Elder in Spain. And when he traveled, he in fact encountered another kind of taxonomy that he tried to transcribe and translate and transpose in his own work, which was destined for a Spanish audience. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about this story and what it illustrates about the kind of distortions of knowledge that take place when these processes of translation and transposition are undertaken. The Francisco Hernandez expedition is one of many examples I discuss in the book but it's special for several reasons. It's perhaps the first scientific expedition in history in the sense that a learned man is paid by the king to travel and write a book about what he saw. The goal was not to conquer lands, but to conquer knowledge. In other words, the first scientific expedition in history was dedicated to the inventory of the medical knowledge of Amerindian populations. Several reasons can explain this. In particular, the indigenous mortality the desire to find new spices, and, I believe, the awareness that the world was disappearing and that it was necessary to record it. For Hernandez, as you said, the expedition was a way to complete the translation of Pliny he was doing when Philip II sent him to Mexico. But Hernandez quickly understood that it was impossible to integrate American plant into Pliny's logic. Studying plants implies not only observing them, but also talking to the people, 
in a more or less coercive way. By learning Nahuatl from them, Hernandez came across a classification system that was much more efficient than the ones used in Europe. The system was so powerful that Hernandez ended up adopting it in the book he wrote for the kings of Spain. Obviously, this work could not be understood despite its beautiful illustrations. This example thus constitutes one of the most thorough attempts to appropriate knowledge and the practical intellectual possibility of doing so. So your book focuses on the links between medicinal plants and histories of colonialism. And what is the relationship between the discipline of botany and the practice of medicine in Europe? And how were the two disciplines co-constituted? This is a complicated question that will deserve a review of the teaching of medicine in medieval universities. But let's say that for a very long time, botany was taught to medical students and also to apprentice apothecaries in order to enable them to identify the plants that heal. The teaching was based on the visit of the gardens of simple plants and on the reading of illustrated herbal. In the 16th century, the development of botanical gardens and dry herbaria contributed to the autonomy of the discipline. If it remained taught within the framework of the training of physicians and apothecaries, it acquired its own tools and all this led, especially at the end of the 16th century, to the constitution of a specific language, which was taxonomy. To return to this question of the colonization of knowledge and to link us to the work of Chanel in the following interview, where I'm interested in her work on the ways that Big Pharma classifies or designates local medicinal practices as dangerous or toxic in order to provide a profitable alternative, I'd like to speak a little bit about one of the opening claims to your book, that there's a relatedness between exploration missions which extract resources that were considered useful and those that targeted practices that were deemed to be deviant. So you focus more on the processes of appropriation, but how are these appropriative practices inextricable from the ones that sought to repress deviancy? I would not say that I have concentrated more on the processes of appropriation. The last part of the book, which deals with non-transfers, is based on the study of countless inquisitorial and missionary sources in which we can observe how the Spanish authorities fought against the use of plants and their transmission within American colonial societies. The relationship between these two aspects, appropriation and repression, is several fold. First of all, the objectives can sometimes coincide. For example, missionaries who fight against the power of healers have both an interest in appropriating their knowledge when they consider it useful and combating their practices when they consider deviant. Secondly, the actors can be identical. In the 16th century, the most important sources devoted to American healing practices were the work of missionaries involved in what was called the fight against idolatry. Finally, there is a process that is common to the appropriation of knowledge and the repression of deviance. Asking questions. It is the gesture of the missionary or the inquisitor during the confession, but also of a traveler such as Hernandez when he talks the Indians and that sometimes he must trick to make them speak. Macuron work focuses precisely on the history of questionnaires because it allows to think about asymmetry. Asking questions simultaneously allows the accumulation of knowledge in certain institutions and the disappearance of knowledge within certain human groups. Samir Boumedian's work on the history of medicinal plants in the 15th century provides us with the necessary groundwork to understand how the discovery, study and use of plants 
was central to both the colonial project and the establishment of a number of Western sciences. In the next interview, we speak with Chanel Adams. In 2017, she published an article entitled Pharmacy Gassi, the Neo-Colonial Instrumentalization of Toxicity to Discredit Healing in Madagascar, which recounts the strikingly similar processes of the conquest of land and of knowledge described in Boumediene's work of history, except here it is applied to the present day also. She writes that, to justify the exploitation and appropriation of pharmacy gassy for financial and political gain, colonial medicine and big pharma have relied on categorizing pharmacy gassy as largely toxic and in need of Western governance. This takes us on to speak about the COVID-19 pandemic and how the state-supplied CVO cure in Madagascar is an exemplary case study in racist skepticism of plant-based medicine, but also in international lobbying, where French pharmaceuticals hold a monopoly on the production of one of the key active ingredients, and as such, of questions of who profits from the development of a local medicine. I wanted to start by talking about your article you published in 2017 with the Phenambulist, um, Pharmacy Gassi, the Neocolonial Instrumentalization of Toxicity to discrediting he- Discredit Healing in Madagascar. And you speak about how Pharmacy Gassi, Malagasy medicinal practices are appropriated and monetized by big pharma. And this is often done by classifying or designating these practices as dangerous or toxic in order to provide a profitable alternative. So I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about the different ways in which this process can work and if there are any kind of key examples. Thank you, Jess, so much for having me uh, here for this conversation. It's it's really a joy to revisit this text from 2017 and sort of pull through the threads to the present day and the ways that this has actually shifted and also continued. So I guess to just orient, uh, there's a few places in the world that are preferable for these bioprospecting practices. And given that Madagascar is such an isolated island uh, with really uniquely exceptional ecology, it's one of those prime locations. So this sort of textbook example of biopiracy and bioprospecting is the case of the Madagascar periwinkle. And so in this case, where it's sort of like the poster child of of exploitation, of indigenous knowledge, it's been in National Geographic, sort of mobilized as this reason to preserve the rainforest. Because going back to the 60s, Eli Lilly, the pharmaceutical company, patented an alkaloid from this plant for cancer treatment. And since then, uh, they've gone on to make billions of dollars because it's used really as this miracle treatment, especially for uh, juvenile leukemia. But this biopiracy narrative is a little bit misleading in this case, even though it's a really convenient story and it speaks to uh, processes that do happen. The rosy periwinkle doesn't really grow in the rainforest. It grows mostly on degraded land like roadside. Um, You'll see it at gas stations. And it's also quite hard to prove that the plant comes from Madagascar or that the idea for using this plant as a medicine comes from Malagasy people because the plant has a distribution area far beyond the Indian Ocean for centuries now. So the companies who have patented the periwinkle can circumvent this idea that it's intellectual property because stretching back a couple hundred centuries, it's difficult to prove where this idea sort of came from in the first place. Maybe what's more precise to this this question of biopiracy is that actually it's transformed not only practices of using medicinal plants within Madagascar, but also formed entire labor systems and economies according to these neoliberal demands 
and international norms uh, and appetites for green products, wellness products, and also pharmaceutically synthetically produced and derived products that come from plant at the origin. So as a result of this process, many Malagasy people rurally who are cultivating um, and collecting these plants are excluded from benefit sharing. And even more of the specialized scientific labor of scientists in Madagascar are mostly oriented towards verifying that these products are acceptable for export, following international norms of safety, and not necessarily funding research in Madagascar that is directed towards more pressing priorities for Malagasy researchers. This is all to say that this is part of a a huge constellation of interweaving dynamics, but specifically in the article for the Phenambulist that you mentioned, I'm talking about this mechanism of appropriating knowledge and focusing in on the laboratory as a space of surveillance. So in these colonial archives in Marseille, these scientists were receiving plant specimens at the turn of the 19th century, really looking for industrial and medicinal applications to bring profit to France and also to symbolically prove that France had this medical and scientific expertise over its colonies at the time. And so these specimens were often treated as like suspicious, everything was potentially toxic. And through this orientation of relating to plants, of connecting to them as if they're already almost criminalized, was a technique that casted doubt not only on the plants and the land, but also Malagasy people who provided information, oftentimes under coercive interrogation, cast um, these sources as unreliable. And by doing that, these scientists in France were able to sort of rewrite authorship and thus the right to exploit this knowledge and and transform it. This, I think, leads me, you've already touched on it a little bit, but it kind of leads me quite nicely to the next question where I'm interested in how these processes where big pharma, for example, profits at the expense of local healing practices, where things like patents, where the reshaping of the labor force, how these things can indicate or how they can bring us back to the earliest instantiations of the colonial project, both in terms of the kind of the role of botany, for example, but also in terms of broader modes of governance. Yes, absolutely. I mean, at its, in its most sort of banal explanation, colonialism is about control of land and natural resources. Um, and so that absolutely puts botany at the center and understanding how it offers this prism where the relationship towards botany and the relationship towards medicinal plants, we can also very quickly understand certain relationships to bodies and land and people. And oftentimes that politic of who gets to live on the land and who gets to heal from the land gets caught up in that dynamic. So appropriating knowledge from uh, indigenous and local people is not really a stretch within that mode of governance and that mode of, of domination of land. But sort of what's almost paradoxical in, in this sense is that many medicinal plants are actually toxic to some extent, and that's part of how they work. That's part of what makes a plant powerful. And this is why, why culturally and land bounded knowledge is really quite useful because there's specific conditions and indications and practices around taking certain plant medicines, even about how it's cultivated and harvested, 
that just don't translate into this laboratory settings where it's quite sterile and removed from context and, and social relationship. Yeah, this is something I was interested in in Samir's work as well, this question of kind of transposition and distortion. But I also wanted to just move on as well to the another more recent article that you published called The DJ and the Miracle, published with Drift. And you recount the story of CVO, which is a Madagascan COVID cure, which was promoted by uh, the president, Rajael. And he extolled the virtues of this cure with quite a nationalist rhetoric based on this, well, based on what you're talking about, about the island's exceptional biodiversity and its strong history and tradition of plant medicine. But what you explain in the article is that only one of the ingredients in CBO is native to Madagascar. And the primary active ingredient is actually Artemisia annua, which is an Asian import to the island. And I thought that it's notable that it's Harris-based orthodontist who's president of the Maison de l'Artemisia, who uh, tipped off the president to its potential curative qualities and then more notable still that the island's Artemisia plantations are run by Bionex, which is a French-owned pharmaceuticals company. So I guess I just wanted to dive into this case study a little bit more in, in the way that it kind of continues to illuminate some of the things we were talking about, the kind of neocolonial practices embroiled in contemporary medicine and care. This story is quite a <laughs> an interesting one to follow because there are all of these pieces about this nationalist rhetoric. I mean, in the part of the Malagasy independence movement coincided with the foundation of IMRA, which is a, a Malagasy scientific research center for the research of medicinal plants to be used mostly on a national level for by and for Malagasy people. And so in the creation of CVO, IMRA was recruited to develop a medicine, which on the one hand, while it was not officially approved at the time, was a medicine that sort of followed the norms of how Malagasy people, especially on the, on the countryside, would consume a medicine through a decoction. And so it definitely excelled in the sense of offering something that would not seem totally foreign and imported to sort of the day-to-day person, and it also didn't pose any extreme medical side effects and risks, which is obviously another, another concern in terms of COVID prevention and treatment options. But on the other side, if you pull the strings, it, it leads back to certain business opportunities and relationships that were pre-existing that predated COVID, because Artemisia, as you mentioned, which comes from Asia, has already been proven to be effective in combination with, with other plants and medicines against malaria. And in fact, malaria has proved to be a far more pressing medical concern for people in Madagascar than COVID to date has been. So what's quite, what's quite telling here is that this COVID organic cure was actually oriented towards international market tastes, but to serve a local need in a way. But in terms of who profited from this and what actually was the result, I mean, the Artemisia plantations and the production facilities were all sort of held at the national administration level. And also the suppliers, of course, like uh, Bionex, which are foreign pharmaceutical companies. So I'm not sure in terms of to return to this benefit sharing question, how much of this, this sort of touted Malagasy medicinal cure actually benefited, at least financially and benefit sharing wise, everyday Malagasy people. It's a fascinating story and kind of one that really like brings up this kind of question of not just appropriation, but recuperation as well. Is it still being produced? 
Not really. The last I saw, I'm, I'm actually here right now, and it, it doesn't seem that the factory is really producing that much as sort of the COVID, our concern over COVID has been waning. But there still is a lot of Artemisia production, so it's going somewhere. In Samir Boubelian's book, La Colonisation du Savoir, which we discussed in the first interview in this podcast, he opens by stating that sometimes it is impossible to study social relations without making space for plants. Indeed, both in his work and in the work of Chanel Adams, we see, to quote him again, the power that the transformation of plants operates simultaneously on the scale of the body, worlds, sensibilities and landscapes. Plants are often treated as a sort of inert background figure, part of the landscape upon which human and social relations play out, and associated practices such as naming and classifying often appear anodyne. However, when we focus our attention on them, we begin to see how what might appear to be small gestures or small things can be transformative on worldly scales. The discovery of a certain plant with medicinal properties might have meant that certain populations, the criminal, the poor, the insane, would be tested upon. An encounter with different plants and systems of organizing pertaining to them might bring about a shift in epistemological regimes, and the discovery of a particularly useful plant might mean its exploitation on a huge industrial scale the establishment of monocultures and plantations, and the reorganization of entire landscapes. Where bioprospecting and the search for so-called green gold was at the vanguard of many a colonial project as far back as the 15th century, we can see through the examples that emerge from contemporary Madagascar that Chanel Adams provides us with that such practices continue to persist and are embroiled in some of the most pressing issues of today. Plants and vegetation are a ma major food source. They are used as building materials, and they are indispensable to the industries of healthcare and pharmaceuticals even in a world where synthetic medicines are expanding to take up an ever-increasing part of the market. Still today, medicinal plants make up 70% of French pharmacopoeia, the guidebook of monographs for the preparation of compound medicines. Morphine is extracted from poppies, and cancer drugs are developed from Madagascar periwinkle. Their cultivation, extraction and exploitation encapsulate in many ways a colonial legacy, where transnational corporations control and profit from the land of nations like Madagascar, and foreign regulatory bodies dictate usage and distribution. Where Samir Boumediene describes instances of non-transmission, where indigenous systems of classification and naming could not be accurately transposed into a legible Western framework due to language barriers and modes of transmission, such as orality to the written, for example, or where there was outright resistance and refusal to transmit knowledge, we see how such botanical and vegetal knowledge is still in the process of being lost too, when industries and international bodies wield a monopoly on the production, consumption and usage of many plants at the expense of local practices and knowledge. As Maddox and Bycroft reminds us in their rooted list, to return to the original performance, scientists count 1.5 million different names for plants on Earth, but botanists estimate that there are just 300,000 existing species. Indigenous names were not included in this list. And while we might mourn the loss of this knowledge, decry the violence of omission and of suppression and exclusion, it is also in this space of non-transmission that we might find resistance. For more riveting content, please check out TBA21 on stage at www.stage.tba21.org. TBA21 on stage's editor-in-chief is Francesca Thiessen-Bornemitzer. Content curator, Soledad Gutierrez. Project manager, Nina Speranda. Curatorial assistant, John Aranguren. Audio editor, Alvaro Tior. Theme music, Carl Michael von Hauswolf. And I am Madeline Robinson. Thank you for listening. <coughs>